Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Warning. This podcast contains discussions of violence and sex. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the second episode of Something Wicked, a bonus series from the Three Ravens podcast, all about historical monsters, maniacs, and murderers from across the world of folklore. My name is Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer, and English romanticism obsessive, and I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Conlon. I've been excited about this episode for a really long time. Good. It's nice to be, well, perhaps nice is the wrong word, but uh, (laughs) nice to be talking about a female mass murderer for once. Yes, it's refreshing at the very least. That's the word. (laughs) So, in fact, Elizabeth Bathory, a.k.a. the Blood Countess, is the Guinness World Record holder for most prolific female serial killer in all of history. Well, isn't that something? It is, yeah. I guess it's... (laughs) Kind of an honour, but I'm not sure it's one many people would aspire to. No. Breaking um, the glass ceiling in the worst way. (laughs) Well, and to break her alleged record would take quite a lot of doing. Speaking of which then, Eleanor, you have obviously heard of Elizabeth Bathory. I confess, I didn't know much about her before kind of digging into my research for this episode. And my goodness, is she a fascinating person. Still, how did you hear about her in the first place? Well, I think that I first read about her on Crime Library. Oh, yeah. Crime which uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s was the go-to place <laughs> online to learn all about serial killers. Mm. It was this sort of fascinating kind of Wikipedia of yeah. crime. And honestly, it was probably quite inappropriate for me <laughs> (laughs) the time because I was 
fairly young. And it had some quite graphic crime scene photographs. Oh, did it? Was, I mean, it was an absolute rabbit hole for all things dark <laughs> and horrid. I think it shut down yeah. uh, around 2015, but it might have been reopened again now. Shout out to Crime Library. You were amazing. If you're still going, <laughs> thank you. Okay. And when you think about Elizabeth Bathory, what did you learn about her from Crime Library? Well, I remember, and this was definitely a while ago, that she was famous for being a fantastically rich aristocrat living in a remote Hungarian castle and murdering young women to bathe in their blood to keep her looking young and fresh. Yeah, I mean, those are definitely some of their headlines. (laughs) I think I also associate her with the fictional Carmilla the Vampire, Mm. which is a gothic novella by Sheridan Lefano. Yeah. I wonder if Carmilla was based on her. Well, I mean, people always think about Bram Stoker as being the person who invented the literary vampire, but not so. No, um, Lefano's Carmilla came out like 25 years before Stoker's Mm. Dracula, and it is... As I remember, this quite racy lesbian vampire story, lots of breasts being bitten, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah, you definitely do. And uh, there seems to be little doubt that Bram Stoker was part inspired by Lefanu, who was in turn part inspired by the story of Elizabeth Bathory, as well as Coleridge's Christabel and Southeast Thalaba. But anyway, for the uninitiated, Elizabeth Bathory herself was, unlike Camilla, a very real person. She was born in Hungary in 1560. Now, to put that in context, Elizabeth I came to the throne in 1558. So we're talking mostly about the Elizabethan era in English terms, although Bathory died in 1614, the year after Shakespeare died, which was about a decade into the reign of James I. That's interesting. Elizabethan to Jacobean is Mm. very much the period I studied during my master's. It really is. So Bathory's lifetime kind of spanned what is known in English history as the golden age, the late flowering of the English Renaissance, including this time of global exploration and economic and artistic growth, as well as all sorts of interesting progress in natural philosophy. It's a great time for English magic. You've got figures like John Dee and Edward Kelly and Simon Foreman in England, Mm -hmm. as well as Giordano Bruno in Italy, who we talked about in our Magic and Medicine's Witch Bottles episode. And there's also, have you heard of Cosimo Ruggieri, who advised Catherine de' Medici in France? Oh, he's a fascinating human being. And uh, just before Bathory's born, uh, you also had Cornelius Agrippa, of course. Paracelsus, Mother Shipton, and quite interestingly, Nostradamus died in 1566, so overlapped with Bathory ever so slightly. All of this meaning that the 16th century was this time of occultism and witchcraft and demonology and all sorts of interesting developments in alchemy and astrology and magic in Europe. And witch trials, of course. Oh, Yeah. And so do we know what life was like in Hungary when Elizabeth Bathory was growing up? Well, Hungary was kind of at the height of its powers at this time, to a certain degree. It's a super interesting country. Its history has been defined by its position as a kind of meeting place or point of friction between different empires and cultures. These ranged from you know Celtic tribes to the Romans, the Huns, like Attila the Hun, famously, as well as the Ostrogoths, the Mongols, and latterly the Ottomans. The name Hungary actually comes from the Huns, who are these nomadic horseback riders widely associated 
associated with fascinating magical practices. Oh, such as what? Sorry, I'm really curious. I have to say, <laughs> I my knowledge of the Huns is that they rode quite small horses. <laughs> yeah, okay. that's, that's what I know about Sure. Them. Well, I mean, talking magic, they are widely associated with mass ritualized slaughter and practices including blood divination and shamanism. And during the Bronze Age, this really fascinating tradition we call today artificial cranial deformation. That doesn't sound very nice. Well, it's not really. They basically used to put bronze moulds onto the heads of infants. So when you're a baby, you've got a soft skull, Mm, obviously. Um, Some say they were a kind of cauldron. And that forced the developing skulls to grow into strange elongated shapes in an attempt to enable the brain to hold different kinds of wisdom or to access different planes of understanding. Wow, that's got to make hat shopping really challenging. <laughs> really complicated, yeah. You're going to have to go custom, aren't you? <laughs> you yeah. <laughs> it's super weird and super interesting, but a massive tangent away from Elizabeth Bathory. Oh, I don't know, maybe we'll find a connection. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. So in terms of Hungary during Elizabeth Bathory's lifetime, the Huns were ancient history by then, as was Matthias Corvinus. Well, I've heard of him. Yeah, he's another the important Raven Prince. figure from Hungarian history. Yeah, a really interesting person. But you had the Habsburg Empire controlling much of the north of the country, then the Ottomans controlling much of the south. And then in the west of the country, you had these two kind of independent principalities who were in contention with the Ottomans, both quite evocative in popular culture, those two principalities being... Transylvania and Wallachia. Ah, Dracula country. Precisely. Now, talking about Transylvania and Wallachia, one of the things that makes Elizabeth Bathory so interesting is that in popular culture, people sometimes call her Countess Dracula, Mm, which makes me wonder... How close, geographically, did she actually live to the place Bram Stoker called Castle Dracula? Well, not super close, really. (laughs) So Bram Castle, that's Bram with an N rather than Bram Stoker with an M, um, which is associated with Vlad the Impaler and which Stoker actually knew nothing about. In the novel Dracula... The castle is a kind of crumbling Gothic ruin, whereas Bran Castle is actually gorgeous and built in bright yellow and terracotta. I love that. Yeah. Bright yellow vampire castle. That's it. But still, to answer your question, the two castles are about 575 miles or 900 kilometres apart. So maybe a 10 or 11 hour drive, they say. Oof, even if you can transform into a flock of bats, it's a bit far to meet up and share a virgin over <laughs> afternoon tea, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, Elizabeth Bathory, she was born into the highest level of Transylvanian aristocracy. Her uncle, Andrew, was appointed ruler of the whole principality of Transylvania, as her grandfather had been before that. And she was also niece of the King of Poland. Wow, so she was born into power then. Right into the heart of it. But, like a lot of European families, inbreeding was a common feature. And perhaps for this reason, Elizabeth Bathory was known to... To be a sickly child, amongst other ailments, including violent fits, mania, and depression. In her childhood, she was known to suffer from what we'd now call epilepsy, a traditional cure for which probably set her off down a bit of a dark path. Oh, consider my interest peaked. <laughs> Tell me more. Okay, well. Epilepsy was considered a sickness of the blood. Okay. Yeah. And so a common medieval treatment for epilepsy was to take the blood of a person who was pure of disease and then rub the skin of the sufferer, the epileptic, particularly the skin of the lips, with this so-called 
pure blood. Uh-oh. Yeah. And then the sufferers of this illness, which was known as the falling sickness in Europe at the time, were sometimes also encouraged to drink this quote-unquote pure blood in a kind of tonic. It wasn't the whole thing. It wasn't just made of blood, but it was part of this tonic. And that was supposed to help abate their condition. Ah, oh, I mean, without being too macabre, if epilepsy was witnessed purely externally yeah. as a kind of fit yes. with a potential for a little bit of foaming at the mouth, as they called it, and so on. Yeah. It might make sense to address the mouth with treatment. Mm. But the use of blood to do so, I mean, even if you consider it a sort of blood transfusion yes. of good blood, it still doesn't sound great. No, especially not if the person donating this pure blood isn't doing so willingly. Oh. <laughs> but you know, more on that later. <laughs> anyway, as a child, Elizabeth Bathory had a very expensive education. She learned multiple languages, natural philosophy, statecraft. Like She was raised to be part of the ruling class. Although one rumour about her kind of threatened to stymie her value on the marriage market. Oh, a scandal. Yes. So, rumours swirled about Bathory in that she was said to have become sexually active much younger than her parents wanted, having an affair with a local peasant or servant, which resulted in a pregnancy when she was only 13. Oh, dear. Yes, it's not not great. <laughs> but, I mean, also in the Middle Ages, pregnancies at that kind of age were not that unusual, yeah. really. Girls of royal and aristocratic families in particular could be married off eye-wateringly young, yeah. even as babies, effectively. And then they were sometimes expected to bear children when they were basically still children themselves. Yeah, which is obviously absolutely hideous. And for Bathory, because this child was not of royal or aristocratic blood, the baby is said to have been spirited away and raised in Wallachia. But what's really interesting is that Bathory was already engaged to be married at the time. She had been from the age of 10. Mm, so what do we know about the husband? Well, his name was Count Ferenc Nadazdi. He was 14 when they were engaged, 19 when they were married. One presumes the marriage was delayed because Elizabeth was pregnant until not long before the wedding. And Nadazdi's family, though somewhat powerful, were quite a way down the ladder from the Bathory's. So much so that Ferenc, her new husband, was actually illiterate. Oh no, so you had this incredibly well-educated girl, Elizabeth, marrying a teenage boy who couldn't even read. Yep, and because of the power imbalance between the families, Ferenc adopted her name, becoming Ferenc Bathory. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah, so then Elizabeth moved to Chachitka Castle, spelled C-A-T-C-H-T-I-C-E, which, as you implied earlier, was this kind of isolated hill fort in the Carpathian Mountains. And they were kind of shuffled off out of the way. They were. And what's even more interesting is, although it's said that Ferenc had the man who fathered Elizabeth's child captured and skinned alive Whoa. to take revenge, Elizabeth and Ferenc didn't have a child together for over 10 years after they were married, largely because Ferenc was basically a soldier on tour. Okay, was he a good soldier? Oh, he was, like a legendary soldier and eventually a general. In fact, he's known as the Black Knight of Hungary. Cool name, but Black Knight doesn't necessarily suggest he was a goodie. <laughs> no, he basically lived on campaign throughout Hungary, battling against the Ottoman Turks. And he was famous for being absolutely brutal in how he fought, taking back loads of castles and territories and so on, with a particular reputation for torture, mass slaughter and extreme cruelty. Oh, 
quite the couple then, <laughs> I guess. Well, they were married for almost 30 years and they did eventually have four children together, each of them going on to have various aristocratic marriages. But Ferenc died in battle in 1604. While Ferenc was out on campaign, what did Elizabeth get up to? Well, Elizabeth was left in charge of running their little family empire, which included about 17 villages <laughs> and do. the castle she was living in, which had been attacked several times in the preceding century. So managing its defences was part of her job. And it's known that during the 30 years or so in which she was married to Ferenc, that she exerted huge power in the region, travelling widely, doing really good work, kind of increasing her power in the area. And also, interestingly, intervening when people were in poverty, particularly in the lives of women and especially unmarried pregnant women. When you say intervening, what do you mean? Well, this is where history gets a little bit muddy because it is well recorded that during this period, Elizabeth did give lots of money to local people and families engaging in acts of charity for which she ought to be applauded, but also that she opened, and the pronunciation of this word is a bit tricky, a gynecaeum or a gynecaeum, depending where you live in Europe. Now, that means kind of woman's refuge or what we might call in England maybe a finishing school where people could send their unmarried daughters to live and learn how to be an aristocrat away from the dangers of war or men or kind of anything else. They're kind of like a nunnery, but without the religion. Yeah, kind of. And this castle, Chachichka, was home at times to dozens of girls from the surrounding area, as well as members of the Hungarian gentry. Now, this is actually sounding incredibly wholesome, Mm -hmm. um, but Elizabeth Bathory is known as one of the most prolific serial killers in European history. Yeah. Famed for murdering a lot of girls. Yes. So what's the deal? Well, it all gets very complicated from about 1609 onwards. So this is after her husband dies in 1604, when Elizabeth's cousin, Georgi Thorzo, had been appointed as dictated in Ferenc's will as protector of his wife and heirs. Now, before this, there were rumours about goings-on at Jatsitska, including a formal complaint filed at the court in Vienna by a priest called Istvan Magyari, levelling a number of accusations at Elizabeth Bathory. And what does this complaint contain? Well, his accusations were of murder and witchcraft, which, considering you had this almost entirely female-run commune of a kind, headed by an incredibly well-educated woman, without Mm. religion as a major feature of life there, you kind of do have to wonder. Yeah. Anyway, the King of Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, and actually the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Matthias Habsburg, appoints Georgi Thurso, Elizabeth's cousin, to investigate what's going on. And this is complicated further by the fact that Matthias, the Holy Roman Emperor, was actually badly in debt to Elizabeth Bathory, who had loaned him huge sums of money to help fund the war against the Ottomans. This is all starting to smell a little bit fishy to me. Are we here to clear her name today? Well, I mean, it might. It might smell a little bit fishy. I think it's really complicated, this one. So 
Because once Thurzo and his two notaries, Andras Karatsturi and Moltzes Ziraki, begin their investigation, what they find is the wildest collection of horrific and horrendous witness accounts you could imagine. I mean, it's pretty insane what they allege. Now, this is what we've all been waiting for. <laughs> based on what you've been saying, it seems like Elizabeth Bathory might just have been a really successful aristocrat, <laughs> which means in turn there's a really good chance the accusations about her are absolute codswallop yep. but I'm guessing it's going to be quite entertaining <laughs> and salacious codswallop so let's hear it okay so it's said that this tradition of Bathory being covered in blood to treat her falling sickness started in her childhood and never stopped developing into a kind of regular treatment and possibly even what we might call today a blood fetish okay now during his lifetime, it said that during their marriage, Ferenc also engaged in all sorts of acts of brutality and sadism for Bathory's pleasure, including an incident where he had a local peasant girl stripped naked, restrained, lathered in honey and left outside to be ravaged by insects. She was apparently eaten to death by ants. Oh, that is not very nice. No, and it must have taken quite a long time for her Ooh. to die if she did die, if any of this happened. Anyway, it said Ferenc also gifted the countess gloves with spiked claws with which she would thrash her servants if they made mistakes and that Bathory was also part of a corrupt circle of aristocrats which included Bathory's aunt Clara and this cabal was said to have engaged in orgies and many of the participants were also alleged to be sorcerers witches and alchemists Okay, well, murders aside, a secret society of rich witches and wizards meeting up to engage in orgies sounds, well, not very illegal. No, and in certain circumstances during this time, murder wasn't actually illegal either. But so the story goes... After having this dark and saucy adulthood, it said her sadistic behaviour escalated dramatically from 1590 in particular when she opened the gynecium and used elaborate punishments on the girls in her care. OK, this is starting to sound less good. Yeah, so this allegedly began with the girls due for punishment being stripped naked and whipped or burned, particularly on the genitals, Ow. as well as being forced to take freezing cold ice baths during winter, some of which were said to be fatal. It said that she was a particular fan of pricking the girls with needles, sometimes driving needles up underneath the fingernails, as well as cutting away parts of these girls' noses and lips and whipping them, sometimes with traditional lashes, sometimes with stinging nettles. And in a link to Lafano's Camilla, actually, she was also alleged to like biting them, especially on the shoulders and on the breasts. OK, so some of this sounds like recognisable corporal punishment spinning totally out of control. Yeah. And some of it sounds a little bit implausible and... Some of it sounds highly abusive. Yeah. Well, the notaries, Keratsuri and Ziraki, initially gathered 52 witness statements about it all between March and October 1610, none of which actually came from the area Bathory owned. Aww. So they're all from people from different regions. Then the number of statements rose dramatically to over 300 the following year, by which time the accusations had become pretty astonishing. 
For example, the death toll for Bathory's crimes, from punishing these girls to death, basically, was put at a possible 650 young women murdered, with the bodies of these girls allegedly buried both inside the castle, under the stone floors, and outside of the castle in hidden graves. Though at the trial that subsequently took place, it was alleged she only actually killed a measly 80 young women. 80 is still quite a lot. Yeah, it's a huge, almost (laughs) unbelievable number. And perhaps because that is really too many murders for one noble woman to accomplish alone, she's said to have had four principal collaborators, servants named Dorotya Semets, Ilona Yo, Katerina Benikia, and Janos Uvyari, who was also known as Ibis, Now, the idea of Bathory bathing in the blood of her victims didn't actually come from this time, but rather appeared about a century after she died. In 1614, she died, of course. Um, But you can kind of see how the idea of her being rubbed with blood might have developed into the bloodbath concept over time. Yeah, it sort of follows, I guess. Yeah, and as for the servants, they were tortured as part of the trial as well, which, let's not muck about, was basically a witch trial, and they confessed that although they didn't murder anyone themselves, they had buried lots of dead girls, each giving varying numbers of bodies they disposed of. And interestingly, they all alleged that the originator of these practices was a deceased servant named Darvulia, who had been Bathory's governess. But Darvulia happened to have died years before. Oh, another character. So what do we know about Darvulia? Well, we don't know very much, although her name is referred to in the confessions. Evidence about her is incredibly scant. Later accounts say she was a witch, but what we do know about her developed later, basically. It's all kind of made up, maybe. (laughs) Um, It's said that she was a governess, basically, and that's kind of what we know. And she was dead by 1609. But we do know that Ibis, the male servant, and Dorothea Sumetz and Ilona Yo were all executed. I feel like after the werewolf of Bedberg, I'm going to regret asking this, but <laughs> how were they executed? Okay, so they were tortured with red-hot pincers first, so that old chestnut, and their fingernails were all pulled out. Um, and then the women were burned at the stake, while Ibis, the male servant, was mercifully beheaded first, and then his body thrown into a pit of fire. Lovely. And uh, what about the other servant? Katerina Benica. Yeah. Well, she was seemingly spared execution, and it's theorised that she was let to return to service for Elizabeth, who by this time was under house arrest in the castle. So Elizabeth wasn't put on trial at all for her own supposed crimes? Nope. She was kept at Chachitska, escaping trial because she was connected to so many powerful people. Although, notably, all of her debts to the Habsburgs were cancelled at this point in time, and her wealth then split up between her wealthy relatives, including her sons and sons-in-law, and guess what? Her cousin! Uh, hold on. This <laughs> Was this all just a kind of heist? Because, yeah. I mean, was there actually any physical evidence of her committing crimes? None at all all according to the court records themselves. Plus, of the 289 witness accounts to use in the trial, over 250 were hearsay from people who hadn't witnessed anything at all firsthand. Neither Keratzuri or Ziraki, the notaries, actually testified in the trial either, despite having done the investigation. And most of those who did appear in the court worked directly for Thurzo, who 
himself benefited financially and politically from the eventual breakup of Bathory's estates and interests. Hmm. Now, I don't believe for a second that Elizabeth Bathory was an angel. From the reading I've done, it seems that her brutal punishments were likely quite real. And it's notable that her husband was implicated in many incidents that happened before he died that were brought up and levelled against Bathory. Yet he was and is remembered as a kind of national hero. And it seems like she and her husband did really torture people. And to be honest, although we might look back from our current point in history and decry torture, quite rightly, back in the 16th and 17th century, torture was hardly unusual. Yeah, I mean, hitting your servants yep. was just so normal, it was wasn't so, it? was so normal. I mean, they were your property. You could yeah, kill them if you, you wanted did. to. And I mean, we want to think in the modern world that we're above torture, but, you know, the Russian army, we know, are at it right now. And not that long ago, the Brits and the Americans had the scandals at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay and all that. And during the Renaissance, people were horrible and cruel to one another, particularly to those in lower classes. And let's not muck about. The slave trade was also in full effect throughout Europe at this time and had been since the Iron Age. Yep. So, you know, Celtic tribes were selling British slaves internationally as early as 500 BC, perhaps even earlier. So while we can't excuse Bathory's behaviour in Hungary by any means, some of it was, uncomfortable as it sounds, kind of normal for the time. Yeah, it's really difficult to look dispassionately at all that horror from what feels like a long time ago, but yeah. it wasn't that long ago, and life was even cheaper then for the most part, wasn't it? Yeah, and if what is said to have happened did happen, even in part with Bathory's torture escalating after her husband died in 1604, with increased torment of women and girls from the gentry, it's kind of understandable that the gentry would turn on her like financial machinations of her family aside. Yeah, of course. But I've got to ask, politics, were they also a feature in all of oh, this? Oh, definitely. For example, Bathory supported the claims of the King of Transylvania over the claims of Matthias and the Habsburgs in a series of land disputes, meaning she was kind of an enemy of the Hungarian state already. And if you roll into that, any acts of sadism and cruelty you can see how she was like a prime target for a kind of epic level smear campaign i think it's really interesting that if she did kill all those women and girls there isn't evidence of the graves yeah. you think they'd find bones and be able to use them as evidence i mean 80 corpses i know right at a minimum 80 corpses and, and you'd think if the stories of the murders were even part way true they'd have found some physical evidence at the time or since but excavations at the ruins of Chatsitska haven't found anything of the kind. Mm. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate yeah. and take an unpopular position here. Yeah. Oh, I can't even say this. I'm going to stand up for female murderers. Okay, cool. This I'm looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think matters about Elizabeth Bathory is yeah. this idea of a powerful woman taking pleasure in hurting young women. Yeah. And it, it might sound a bit mad to say it, but... The cultural norm is for men to be guilty of acts of cruelty, yeah. particularly against women. And maybe part of what makes this case so interesting and has done for all this time is that she was a woman who took pleasure in hurting women. Mm -hmm. And that fact alone means there's something notable about the uh, oh, case, even if it was just smear. Yeah, and although there's no evidence of Bathory having taken sexual pleasure in hurting or torturing or potentially murdering these young women, that isn't to say that she didn't. 
It's easy to forget that the word sadism only popped into existence in the early 19th century, named famously after the Marquis de Sade, while masochism only came around later, named after Leopold von Sach Maysock, who died in 1895. Both of those writers, de Sade and Maysock, wrote about the pleasure in hurting people on the one hand, or being hurt on the other hand, with the terms sadism, masochism and sadomasochism becoming medical terms in the 1890s. And that's the thing. I mean, today we know full well and, well, broadly, culturally celebrate the idea of women in S&M. Yeah. A, you know, the BDSM mistress and so on. Mm-hmm. While it's obviously complex, all these changes in views of sex and sexual power took on a kind of wider acceptance in the late 20th century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, von Sachmasoch's Venus in Furs yeah. was, I think, quite wild at the time. Oh, for sure. Um, obviously a cult novel then and now, yeah. but a very unusual positioning sure. of the female. Definitely. And the role Elizabeth Bathory plays in that story is obviously massively divisive, particularly it seems as she's a very high-profile abuser, if not a mass murderer. Mm-hmm. But without the language we've developed over the last, what, 150 years, yeah. it's Interesting to put her proclivities into a kind of different context. Well, exactly, because on the one hand, if you want to believe everything that was said about her, she's a total gothic horror monster, an aristocrat born sick, guilty of over 650 murders and the torture and abuse of hundreds of powerless women and young girls, and a person who didn't have to pay the price for her crimes while her servants did. Yet, on the other hand, you could say that she was just a relatively normal noble engaging in the kinds of horrible things many nobles did at the time. But because she was a woman and a powerful woman, especially an older woman without a husband when she was accused, you could argue that she was basically put on trial indirectly and acquired this reputation of a kind of pseudo-vampiric serial killer whose infamy has only been embellished across like 400 years of anti-female gossip and hearsay. That's really difficult. Mm. Because like with Peter Stump, the werewolf of Bedburg, we just don't really have enough hard evidence to go on. Everything that's a confession or a testimony is finding good, but I don't know, confessions, if they're gleaned through torture or bribery, you can't really trust them. Of course not. And once again, we're kind of left wondering what to think. We are. I mean, it is a tough one. And just to ask, how did she die? Peacefully all told, (laughs) in her sleep. She's said to have told her servants where she was under house arrest in in this castle, that she was feeling cold, in particular that she had cold hands, and so it was suggested that she went to bed to lie down, and that she was found later having passed away. But one final mystery is, nobody knows where she was buried. Well, maybe she never was. Maybe she lives on draining the blood of virgins to this very day. (laughs) Hey, if there's no evidence to the contrary... Who's to say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Martin. That was really interesting. Oh, good. And what are we going to be looking at in next month's episode of Something Wicked? Well, I've been trying to do incidents from way back, but our next episode is going to jump us forward a bit in time for a case which took Victorian England by storm and which was solved by a ghost. I'm talking, of course, about the Red Barn murders. Super interesting. Well, I will look forward to that. In the meanwhile, if you would like bonus content, including all of our episodes ad-free, all of the stories from our mainline episodes as text versions, and bonus content, including our newsletter, new edition out tomorrow, plus exclusive episodes and episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, please consider joining our Patreon for just $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash 
3 Ravens podcast. Please, if you can, write us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Email us with thoughts, feedback, and entries to our winter folklore card competition yes, to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on social media via facebook.com forward slash 3 Ravens podcast, Instagram at 3 Ravens podcast, and on Twitter via 3 Ravens pod. Until next time, while our tale of terror has gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such leemen With a down, derry, 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 down, down deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.